Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionising the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. How does someone make 2024 one of the best of their lives? It's a great question. So, all right, you've had the 1st of, of January, you've got the fresh start and you've made some news resolutions. And that's, I think, fantastic. That's the first step. But if you've not achieved those things before, there's a good chance you're not going to achieve them this year. So what do we do differently? And for me, there's a couple of real keys. It's a new year, and for the first episode in 2024, I've invited a man who devotes his time, energy, and passion into helping build better humans. With over 17 years of experience working within the Australian Defence Force as an aviation medical technician, both here and overseas, his reflections and insights during those years, and also what he's learned through his work within the adventure and fitness industries, as you'll hear, are invaluable. He's a man that wears many hats. He operates as a personal mentor and coach to professional athletes. CEOs and everyday people wanting to make changes and improvements in their lives. He's hiked, adventured and experienced some of the most amazing destinations around the world, including Everest Base Camp, Mount Kilimanjaro, dog sledding in the Yukon and has crossed the Kokoda Track almost 90 times. His travel list is literally many people's bucket list and when it comes to life, his philosophy is simple. He can assist you getting the most out of yourself. So if you're wanting to set goals, not just resolutions for 2024, then this chat with the founder of the Building Better Humans project, Glenn Azar, is sure to get you thinking bigger, better, and with more clarity as you head into the new year. Glenn Azar, welcome to Share. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me, mate. Mate, it's an absolute privilege to have you on board. I've been following and we've been connected over the last few years and it's been uh, amazing to see some of the things you're doing. So I was like, uh, I've got to get Glenn on and definitely to kick off 2024. Mate, thank you. Um, you know, I really love watching people coming into this space, be it the personal development space, podcasting, all of that sort of stuff. And I'm always happy to support people getting into that space because I just think everyone's got a different voice. We've got different sort of opinions and markets and so on. And you can't have too much positivity in the world. That's my belief. Yeah, I agree. And I try to promote as many other podcasts or other people doing some really amazing things. And that's what the Share Podcast is about because if we can kind of all do our little bit, accumulatively, whatever. Anyway, together, we, um, I'm not, I'm not going to say that on a podcast again, um, but together we, the impact we can make in the world is, is so much more. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think everyone's got their own sort of piece, like someone that you connect with and I connect with could be totally different, you know, and, and they could also be the same, but the point is, I just don't think you can have too much out there. It's that what they call the Moorish mentality. You know, a lot of people kind of had this mentality, I'm just trying to protect everything, that scarcity in in business, in life. 
I just don't believe that. I don't, you know, success in any sort of form isn't cake. Mm. It's not like when I take a big chunk of it, there's less for you. I just don't think that's how the world works. Mm. It's interesting though, because I find that when I reach out to people or I do something for someone and I'll say, oh, no, no, no. Oh, what are you going to charge me? No, 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 nothing. I'm just just doing, I just want to get the message out there. And they're like, huh? Because everyone's so used to, well, there's got to be something you're getting out of this. It's funny, isn't it? There's a currency in the world at, at some level and or, or the world's very transactional. That's kind of how the world's become. So it's, it's a trick. And we just had um, someone reach out to us, Indigenous, uh, working in a school up in uh, North Queensland and three children that are autistic and the school's been really good to him. And he just asked Taylor, you know, who you know as a professional boxer that I train, if he was to send us something, was there any chance she would sign it because they're doing raffles of all these athletes? But he really was wrote this long email and trying to justify why I would really love for you to do this thing. And, and we're like, dude, just send it. Like, it's no big deal. That's no drama to us at all. Yeah. But I'm guessing by the way the email's written, maybe some athletes or some gatekeepers aren't letting them through. And, and that's a bit sad, but you know, that's the way the world can be sometimes. Yeah. And knowing you and knowing Taylor, you know, if Taylor was up there near that community at any time, she'd be like, let's do a workout. Let's, let, let me come visit you. Yeah, 100%. Like besides being a world-class athlete, she's a world-class human and that's I don't deal with people that aren't, to be honest, if I can help it. I'm getting far too old for that. So, yeah, I'm proud of the way she is as a person more so than, than what she is as an athlete. Yeah. And we've all got – I love that quote – we've all kind of got the ability to make someone's day. Mm. Yeah, and, and to be honest, it's not as, as big as you might think it is. Like obviously she's got a real platform, like a proper platform – but you and I as just average everyday blokes, you know, and anyone listening or watching your podcast, just the way you talk to people, the the politeness at the coffee shop in the morning when you're ordering your coffee or if they get it wrong and you're not blowing up, those little things actually make people's day. So you don't have to be someone to do that. But with my athletes in particular, and I deal with a lot of high profile athletes as well, I'm very adamant to them that you've got to be someone that is willing to give back when those opportunities come because that's a currency that you've got that many of us don't have and it's it means a lot more to people than you realize and if they weren't like that I wouldn't care what their name was I just wouldn't work with them it's I don't need that yeah I try when I go into retail or I go into hospitality and as we all know these days it's a little bit different to it was 10 15 20 years ago and there's this real a lot of the time this lack of work ethic and attitude and I love when you know, there's uh, someone that's working in a cafe or retail store and they give great service or they're, they're energetic or they've got a smile or they've got energy. And I just say to them, never lose that, you know, and I compliment mm. them on it. And it's amazing. These 14, 15, 17 year old youth, their eyes and their face lights up. Oh, thank you. No one's ever said that to me. And it's just it makes you all feel nice. But I just love complimenting and pointing out when people are doing stuff really, really well, because I think sometimes as consumers, people can be very quick to kind of judge and, and jump down them when they do something wrong. But I think just as much, we need to make sure that we're giving them that encouragement and we're giving those compliments to actually make them feel better about their job and, and the impact that they're having, no matter what they're, what role they're playing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're quick to, uh, you know, in this system of rating businesses and so on, we're quick to rate people if they get something wrong. But we're very slow to to give people a bit of a, a pick me up and and that's just a societal thing and it's and it even comes to compliments around I was at I went to a coffee shop recently just around the corner from me and I hadn't been there they just had a refurb and there's a girl that was um, serving us and she had the most amazing blue eyes like like stunning blue eyes and she had this real 
personality that was just bigger than life. And she came over and I was with a mate of mine. And I said to her, I just said to her, do you wear contacts? And she said, oh, no, why do you ask? I said, because your, your eyes are actually amazing. And we live in a society where we're scared to even say something like that because, mm. oh, they might think you're hitting on them or you're being inappropriate. And she, but she was like, oh, thank you. And she kind of sort of bounced away and her whole energy was really good. I've got this big belief in energy and, and the way we represent ourselves. And when you walk into our space here in Brisbane, so for people that don't know, we've got a gym, we've got a personal development set up, we've got an adventure business, it's all housed here. But the first sign when you walk in says, be responsible for the energy you bring into this place. Mm. And I know that even if I've got bad stuff going on, my energy matters to other people. I'm not going to bring people down because I've got stuff going on. It's, it's just not the way I want to operate. Many, many years ago, I used to have an office at Nova Radio Station. And across the road from there is a coffee shop called Caffeine. And it was just always a line out the door. And the girl that was working there, just busy. She'd have her head down. She wouldn't look up. She'd go, and she'd sense that you were there, and she'd say, I'll be with you in a minute. And then she'd just go through a coffee order, and then she'd always say, um, apologies for the wait, which is neither here nor there, but it was always this real rote conversation. And I would listen to the people in front of me, and it was, how's your weekend? And people say the same thing, too short, or, you know, we just have real rote conversations. And I remember she came when it was my turn. I used to always try and get her to talk, and it, it became a thing. But I remember the first time I just said, she said, how's your weekend? I said, oh, really productive. And she kind of stopped and looked and actually looked me in the eye and said, oh, what did you do? And I remember thinking, I actually didn't do anything, but now we're in a conversation. I said, oh, you know, I had to make something up because, but I think I could see the energy shift in her, like you were saying, when you say to a young kid, hey, you know, really good service or don't ever lose that spark or whatever. Mm. I reckon the next five people they serve get a better version of them Mm. because they're up. And then those five people are probably passing on a better version of someone else. And that's, my belief around energy transference. And that's why I'm really, really conscious of the energy that I put out to people. Yeah. These days, I think a lot of the the youth that are in jobs and in that younger generation, I hear a lot of the time, I just work at Macca's. I just work at a cafe. Mm. I just, I just. And for me, when I was in my youth and I was working at Big W or I was working at McDonald's or whatever it was, like I saw it as bringing my energy to it. And what I did was quite important, but it seems to, in many cases, that importance of the life skills, the social skills, all those things that are so paramount to that development when you come through your youth is is kind of lost a little bit. I feel there's a couple of things in that though now. I think people don't or aren't conscious of language and how important language is mm. because, mate, I've heard plumbers and doctors and far- like I do a lot of personal development in a lot of different industries and you'll often, someone will get up and talk and, um, you know, I was with a group of uh, like Queensland Health and people would get up and I'd just say, just give me your first name and what you do. And the amount of people that said, oh, I'm just an accountant or oh, mm. I'm just a pharmacist. And I think, well, what do you mean just a pharmacist? You know, why don't you say, I'm a pharmacist, I'm an accountant, I'm a for any of us, it's not just, I'm not just a boxer, like I'm not just an athlete or I'm not just a personal development guy. That word just is very demeaning to self, mm. but people don't pick that up. And I'll regularly pull up my people or people close to me on their language if I think that it's self-defeatist because we hear our own language all the time. Even if we think we don't, we hear our own language. And even if I am mopping floors and I'm at the start end of a job and I'm, you know, I'm doing sort of that bottom rung as we all have to when we start, even so do that job as best you can and move on to the next thing and do as best you can. It's a a real model for success and it's very simple, but it it can't be helpful if you're beating yourself up as you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well, Glenn, 
You've got a lot of insights. I know you've got a lot of knowledge, but I really want to kind of dig into where did Glen Azar come from and kind of tap into that journey a little bit. Yeah, man, it's a really, it's a long story. Um, and I guess I'm 51 years of age now. So of course it's a, you know, a longer story as, as you get a bit older, but I moved out of home at a young age at 14. I grew up in a very, I would go as far as to say abusive home, as far as my dad was a, a big drinker, big guy, bigger than me, ex-military. And, you know, I, I resented that for a long period of my life. But as I'm older now, I look back and say, he didn't have the tools. He had a tough upbringing and, and it was just a, a repeat. But I moved out of home young. I joined the military very young. I was a teenager when I joined the military and I roamed the streets a little bit in between there and I did things that I'm probably not proud of, but I'm glad I got out of my system as a 14, 15, 16-year-old. I look at these, the road kids that we talk about in the media today, and I was one of those kids, if I'm really honest. But I joined the army. The first Gulf War had kicked off around that sort of 1990. And as an angry young bloke, I thought, you know, they pay you to go and fight people. I was 100% about that. Uh, naive, not realizing what war was other than movies. And I joined the military and that became a family for me. I did 17 years in the army full-time. I worked as an infantry soldier initially, but very quickly transferred over to medical corps. I specialized in aviation, so helicopter evacuation. I became a paramedic and a registered nurse. The army paid for my degree at USQ when I got back from a deployment in Timor back in 99. And so I was on a you know, from a year nine education to being educated all the way through to, to having those level of qualifications and experiences was huge. In my deployments, I've deployed to war zones and non-war zones around the world in a medical role. I saw a lot of third world countries of people that had amazing capacity. You know, I had a guy in Bougainville in the North Solomons in 98. His name was Sylvester. He got shot three times through the chest with an M16. We had to do a live blood transfusion. So I put two full units of my blood. That's a whole litre. And another bloke matched him and also did the same, which really knocked me for about six weeks. But we did that to keep this guy alive. He took two Panadol for pain relief. He didn't really trust us. He was a part of the enemy force. Took two Panadol for pain relief and then refused anything else the whole time he was with us. And I'm thinking, man, this guy got shot three times in the chest. Now, I didn't think about that heavily as a 27, 28-year-old, but now I'm working heavily in the personal development space and it made me realize how how resilient and capable humans are of dealing with really hard things. Mm. And so I use that to educate people today. Now, I got out of the army in well, end of 2009, so I've been out for a little while now, and I went straight into running an adventure business. So I run trips to the Kokoda Track. I've done nine crossings of the Kokoda Track this year alone. I've done 89 all up over the last 20 years. So I do Kokoda, Everest Base Camp, Mount Kilimanjaro, go to Russia, when there's not a war on, South America, the Yukon. That's my main line of work. And in that, I started to learn what personal development was really about, taking people who weren't sure if they could cross the track or climb a mountain and take them from you know, where they want to be to where they are, where they end up being on the top of that mountain is pretty cool. And so then I, through that process, I've got four children, um, which I think is important to mention. My oldest daughter is 28. My youngest daughter is 16. I've got a 26-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old son. And it's the middle two that really shaped my world and my belief systems, I guess. My second daughter, Alyssa, climbed Mount Everest at the age of 19 and again at the age of 21. She's the youngest woman to climb Mount Everest from both the north and south routes. And that was on her third attempt. She had two failed attempts due to natural disasters. She got buried in her own tent in as an 18-year-old with a, an avalanche that came through and dug her way out. And 
you know, there's at the moment there's a, a story being written about her. There's a book out, but there's a movie being written, and it's they're, they're scouting around to get that sold. But then my son Christian's 19, and he's autistic and intellectually impaired. So Christian's mentally about five years of age. He fully believes in Santa. You could not convince him otherwise. He's met him, Chermside. He knows when he gets to Chermside every year. That's his spot for him and him and Santa to catch up. Believes in Spider Man. Is the most beautiful, soulful human. But he's a man. And he can't wipe his own backside. He doesn't shower himself. He requires our help. And I use him as an example to my other kids, my three daughters, to say that whatever you do in life, I think you owe it to Christian and kids like Christian to live the best life that you can because he's not got that opportunity. And it's kind of what this whole not dead yet moniker is about for us, It's which we wear on our, our shirts here. It's we do what we do because we're not dead yet. As long as I'm alive, I want to live my life. I'm not trying to get to 80 or 90 as safely as possible. I actually want to go out and have experience. I want to be conscious about what I do. And I pass that on to all the athletes I work with now. Today, and I'm fast forwarding a little bit, I own a gym in Brisbane called Project 180. So when you think about that, everyone that walks through these doors has a project to work on. And it might be fitness, it might be weight loss, but it most likely is something else. And everyone, the 180 is about 180 degrees. I want to take you from where you are now to where you want to be physically, mentally, and emotionally. And that's what my team focuses on. And that all comes under this umbrella of the Building Better Humans project. So I work a lot with athletes, as you know. We get football players, NRL, NRLW, AFL, AFLW, so on, and and a variety of other athletes come through. And I always say to teams, my job isn't, and so I say to the athletes, my job isn't to make you a better footballer. Like your coaches, that's their job. My job is to help you to be a better human because by being a better human, you're going to be a better athlete. You're going to be a better father or, or mother or daughter or you know whatever your roles in life with who you interact with, you're going to be better as well. So I'm trying to develop healthier, happier humans in a pretty chaotic world, as particularly the last three or four years. And there's been a massive growth in that business because the world is in struggle with, the, with all of this, you know, the COVID and so on. And and so it really highlighted the importance of resilience, anti-fragility, just really trying to grow people. And do they become better athletes? Yeah. Do they become better plumbers or electricians or doctors or whatever they want to be? Yeah. And sometimes I'll get athletes to go, once they've been through some programs, I don't even want to be an athlete. That's not my passion. Cool. That's okay too. So that's kind of what I do now. I still run the adventure business. I still run the Building Better Humans project. And then we still run Project 180. And you're a boxing coach. Yeah, so my the boxing coach thing came about more recently as a COVID project, I would like to say. So I used to train boxers. I you know, had a good mate of mine, Mick Shaw, that was the Australian champion back in the day. And that was an overachievement for Mick. You know, he was someone that had a, an eye injury that saw him retire from sport for a few years, made it come back. And he said, I just want to at least win a Queensland title because he was a very talented amateur who never really went on into the pros much. So we won a Queensland title and then he got an Australian title shot on really short notice, on a week's notice, a weight division above him, and he won it. And I still remember to this day that he messaged me and said, you know, this is more than I ever thought I would achieve in this sport. And it doesn't matter what happens from here on in, that Australian title can never be taken off me. I've always got that. And he's right. And he went on to win two Australian titles, have some defences and you know, he's a father of, of seven children. He's got a very good life. Um, he's a hardworking man. But that Australian title was really important. I got out of the sport because it's a tough sport. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of people in that sport that don't align with who I am as a human. And I'm not talking about athletes. I'm talking about 
your managers and promoters. And it, the sport is what people imagine the sport to be at times. But during COVID, I was introduced to a young kid who was a Commonwealth Games medalist at the age of 18. She was the youngest athlete in the Games. And one of my trainers here said, have you heard of Taylor Robinson? And I don't play in the amateur space, haven't for years. And I said, but I have heard her name. And I knew that she was the youngest boxer out of any country at the tournament, and I knew she won a medal. And he said, I met her, and she's really interesting, and we should do a podcast with her. And we had a COVID podcast called Bro Chat, which we don't run anymore. So she came in, and we sat down and chatted. And, and this kid's 50 kilos, and all of us are 100. I'm being generous. I think Jade Nicarima was the smallest at about 85, and I'm about 115. And what I notice is that when we're around her, she doesn't give space. She doesn't step back, which a lot of smaller people and particularly females might do. She owns her space. Mm. And I really liked that about her. I thought, yeah, this kid's got a bit of spark. Then she reached out and wanted to start doing some work for me. She was struggling to just pay rent, to be honest. There was no fights because it was COVID. She was in a managerial contract and a promotional contract she was unhappy with, with an overseas company. Nothing was happening. So I started just employing her I watched her have her second pro fight. She looked unhealthy. She won the fight comfortably, but she was overweight. She was soft looking. And I don't say that disrespectfully to people listening. Weight's a big thing in our sport. But she just didn't look good. She didn't look happy. She didn't look healthy. And she came and saw me straight after the fight. She came back to work. I said, you can have a week off. And she said, oh, no, I want to come back in. And she came and saw me on Monday and said, I need to change trainers. I'm not happy with my team. I'm not happy with my promoters. I'm not happy with management. And we had to work out how to get her out of that. People in our sport are very narrow-minded typically, and I say that with all due respect, but we are. And changing trainers in Australia in particular is not something that's really well accepted because we're big on loyalty. But if it's not right for you, it's not right for you. So I said to her, where are you going to go? And she said, I don't really know. She said, but um, I'm just going to lay low for four or five weeks because she was conscious that people won't like it, and then I'll scout around some gyms. And she said to me, can you hold focus pads for me just for that time? And she knew I had a little bit to do with boxing, but not really. I'd been out for a few years. So I started holding focus pads for her. We did that for a couple of weeks. And she just said to me, would you be interested in training me? And I said, I don't really think I can because I naively thought COVID was going to be a three-month thing. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, the adventure business is going to kick back off soon. We're going to be back going by July. And you know, as we all know, we weren't going by July. So I trained her for another couple of weeks. And after four weeks, she said to me, like, I would really like you to consider taking me on, even if it's just for the end of the year. And then when the adventure business kicks off, I'll, I'll go and find somewhere else. So I started training her. And if I'm brutally honest, I don't think I'm a good enough trainer for her. She's that good. She's a very, very talented athlete. And that's how I felt. I thought, you know, I've been out of the game a long time. She is a next level athlete. But I agreed. And so I started training her and we sought help. We were training, we were trained with anyone. We were trained with Jeff Fennick, with Paul Briggs, with all these people that bring things, we go to America and train with coaches over there. But what we've learned over the last three years is that I am the right person to coach her, not because I'm the technically the best coach in the world, because I'm far from that, but because I care about her. And I heard an All Blacks coach saying once that he'd trained the men and he was now training the women. And he said, one thing I've noticed, the difference between female athletes and male athletes, he said, women need to feel good to play well. They're a very communal sort of person and they need to feel good. He said, men need to play well to feel good. Men are more validated by their performance. And I thought, he's right. I understood that when Tay feels good, she performs better. And that's in every area of her life. And so with me, 
I feel, and maybe one day you'll, you'll do a podcast with her, but with me, she feels safe. She knows I've got her best interests at heart. She knows that I'll protect her from other people. She's like one of my daughters. And when she feels safe, she performs really well. We've now got her ranked at number three in the IBO. She's ranked number three currently in the IBF. The title's vacant. One and two are fighting each other next week, this weekend actually, and Taylor will automatically go to number one. So she will fight for a world title in the new year. Now, we've had our doubters along the way. We do things a bit different to other people. We're not a mainstream boxing gym. We don't you know, kiss butt of the industry at all. We just run our own race. And there's been knockers, definitely, but the results speak for themselves. This kid, is, she's had 10 fights. And next week, she'll be ranked number one in the world. You know, she will definitely fight for a world title next year. I think she'll win more than one. And on top of being a very good athlete, she's a very good human. Now, with her, other fighters get attracted in. I started working with Dee Dee Hobbs, who's one of the most feared female fighters this country's got. And people don't mention, you call out fighters, you don't call out Dee Dee, because she'll turn up at your house and fight you. She's, she's ready to fight. I started training uh, Sugar Neeks recently. Just, she was just looking for somewhere and someone to work with. Right now, we're not going to continue working together into the new year, but it was just a stopgap. We worked together just to get her to where she needed. But she lives in Melbourne, and the travel was a little bit too much, but we still work together in the sense that we'll spar and very, very good human as well. And then I just recently started with a mate of mine's son. And this is a full circle moment that you have in life. I worked with this guy years ago, Shane Hegarty, and Shane was like my mentor in the Army. He was a, a sergeant physical training instructor when I was a digger and when I was a corporal. And his wife, so um, the young bloke's mum, she was a Navy physical training instructor. We worked together out at Oki years later. And sadly, she was killed in a car accident. She was out on a run. A car left the street and hit her when she was walking along the foot, or running along the footpath and killed her. And I think Bryce, the son, was maybe in grade three at the time. And I always thought I wouldn't train male athletes because everyone does that. And I like training female athletes. I've got a connection with them. And then Shane started coming to me and saying, I'd love you to take Bryce on. And, you know, he's thinking about a move to Brisbane. And, and he knows Tay. They work together in the amateurs and train together. They were fighting for Commonwealth Games selection. And I kept resisting it. And then finally, I, how can you say no to someone that mentored me through really tougher periods of my life as a young man who I've experienced tougher periods of their life? And, and, and Bryce and his older brother, Brennan, they were at, I've got pictures of them at my daughter's third and fourth birthday parties. Yeah, we've got a long history. So I started working with Bryce. Uh, he had five years out of the sport. He's a good kid. You know, when I say kid, he's 29. So I've got a really nice team, and I'm not trying to have a team of boxers, just to be really clear. And just recently, I took on a, a young girl. Oh, she's 30. She's older than the rest of my team, Millie. And Millie's a, a girl that wants to fight. She's never had a fight. She's trained for two years. But this, this girl brought in such a, a beautiful energy into our gym when she first came to meet me that I couldn't say no to her. And I'm a sucker for energy. I'm a sucker for people that are good people. And she's a qualified PT. She's, she walks the talk. And, she, and I said, well, you can train with me, but I'm going to throw you in the deep end. I put her into spa Shanika. Uh, I put her into spa Taylor in her first two spas. This is a kid that's never had a fight. She didn't show, I said to the girls, don't go easy on her because she needs to learn. And they didn't bash her, but they certainly made sure they got over her, obviously, as world-class athletes. And she never shied away. She just keeps showing up. In fact, she's one of the first one here, the last one to leave. She's a mum, so it's not like she's not busy. So, yeah, I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by, by really, really good people and, as a result, good athletes as well. So you've gone from serving your country for over 17 years and, and now you, you serve the community. With your military experience, what 
led you into that path? You know, what experiences kind of pushed you to going to the adventure and kind of the coaching? So the military, it gives you a lot of tools and a lot of soldiers may not realize that while they're in and I was probably one of them. But how I got into the adventure space was Kokoda back in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s was very raw. Not too many people were doing it. I had some blokes I knew that were some ex-SAS guys. Uh, one guy, Al Forsyth, was the ex-RSM of the SAS. So I think still might hold the record as Australia's longest serving SAS soldier, like 22 years, phenomenally long career. I'd worked with his brother in the army. He was a transport guy, Greg, and they were taking the Westpac executives across Kokoda. And that was pretty freaky because these are high-powered, high-paid people and they're a commodity to the bank. And they're like, we're putting millions of dollars of commodity over in the middle of the jungle in New Guinea. So they wanted safety. Now, they had safety from these SAS soldiers around it, but they wanted medical safety. And I was, I was in the army. I think I might have been out at Toowoomba again by then because I spent some time in Townsville. And they said, we're looking for a medic, and particularly it'd be good if we had an aviation qualified medic. Now, you don't need it. The worst thing that happens on Kokoda is you roll an ankle or, in my experience, of, of, and I've done 89 crossings of Kokoda. So, but I put my hand up. It came across our desks in the military. And one thing when you're a medic or a, a nurse or a doctor in the military, you can't sit around waiting for war. You've got to be qualified at what you're qualified at. So I would regularly go and do placements in hospitals, placements in the ambulance service so that we're keeping our skills current. So I just said to my boss, hey, there's this trip to the jungle in New Guinea. And he was like, yeah, go for it. And then I started doing one or two of them a year. And I remember thinking, I could do this for a job because I never thought about getting out of the army. I loved the military. I had no fear of dying. Uh, never, ever thought about it when I went into war zones. And I've been in some pretty dicey situations, and, but I've never thought about it. But when Christian was born, I started thinking about the fact that he needs me around for the rest of his life, his mother and I, she was in the army as well, because without us, who looks after him? The government, his, his sisters, like we want to make sure we set him up as well as we can. It's the only time I really started to think about, this will sound silly the way I'll term this, but you don't have the luxury of dying. There's a young man that needs you for as long as you can be on this earth to look after him. And it changed my perspective around death. So that was the start. And then I started to realize very quickly that adventure, in my belief, is the best personal development in the world mm -hmm. because you can prepare for all scenarios. And one thing adventure does not give you is the same scenario every time that you do something. Now, every time I do Kokoda, I have to deal with weather. I have to deal with delays in flights or whatever. I have to deal with injuries and illness and all the things that can happen on adventure. And as a human, we are a very minute animal on this planet when it comes up against Mother Nature. And so you soon realize that you have to exhibit all of these qualities of personal development. You can't just have cool quotes on your Instagram. You can't just read the latest it book to, to have the best mindset in the world. When you're out in the jungle, or when you're on the side of a mountain and the weather's battering you, who are you really? And that's what I've learned. And I see when I take people on Kokoda, for example, and I watch them walk through those archways at the end and you see the raw emotion and tears and, the, oh, my God, I actually made this and I wasn't sure that I could and, and the understanding of the story, I'll never get tired of that. Like it's just such an amazing experience. So that's what led me into that space and then by default the personal development space, I guess. And through your growing up, through your experiences, as you say, there was some interesting experiences through that kind of teens. Is that what led you to bring in the Ayala Warriors and the Bro Camp? There's a couple of things. So, so for 
people listening, Ayala Warrior and BroCamp are developmental programs for 11 to 17-year-olds. Now, these are not for troubled youth, which is a lot of people go, oh, you deal with troubled youth. No, we do, but not specifically. This is for all youth because I think all young people should have some capacity to have personal development. Now, it came about for a few reasons. One of my daughters had been through an experience with some domestic violence, and that kind of rocked my world a little bit, and and as her parents and mothers as well. It rocked our world because I've got three daughters. I kind of felt like the world had changed and women were very much equal to us. That's my belief. It's why we have so many female athletes in our gym and and, and then you realise, well, look, not all men think the same. We've still got a lot of work to do. So initially started because I wanted men to be better and I wanted girls to be stronger, um, if I'm honest. And I know those words might trigger some people to say, oh, women are strong. I know, but, but I wanted them to be surrounded by good male role models and I wanted men to be good male role models. And so that's kind of how it started. And it was another COVID project. I took these pharmacists the top performing pharmacist from Terry White, Kenmart, I took him across Kokoda in 2019, I think that was, and very, very high-powered alpha sort of individuals. And one of the pharmacists said to me that when it comes to women, women will look after their health all the way through. So they're going through puberty, they'll come and seek you know, medical and pharmacy and, and then you know getting their periods for the first time, pregnancies and then post-pregnancies and then years later going through menopause and they're all of that way through women will look after their health. And then there's men. We are quite the opposite. And mm. pharmacies, particularly Terry White Kenmark, they're really proactive on health in the community. So they run all these events and all these women turn up. And then they try and run events for men, no one turns up. And they mm. and the biggest challenge for men realistically is mental health, is this stoic sort of belief that we can't have emotions and all of that. And so the only way they could really get men to turn up was to put a famous footballer at the event. So they started running events and one of them had Wally Lewis turn up. Boom, they, they sell out. They had all these people turn up because Wally can tell some stories and they really wanted that. And then they just try and slide their, you probably should look after your health in the middle of that. The pharmacist's trying to do the right thing. They run an event with no footballer, no one famous, no and you know, crickets. No one really turns up. Goes, well, what are we talking about? Then they got, uh, I think it was Alastair Lynch from the Brisbane Lions. Bang, sell out. Everyone's there again. So they kind of got their model. And then one year she said, this pharmacist said to me, Karen, she's a great lady, and she said, would you come and do one? And I said, well, I'm not famous. Like, I'm a nobody. And I mean that with all due respect to myself. I think most of us are nobodies. But I can talk well. I've got a lot of life experience. Anyway, about 100 or so people turned up, which was pretty good for a non-footballer. Non, I've got none of those stories. And I just went through this general talk, and there was a lot of guys there from the men's shed. Then there was some young AFL footballers that kind of came in at the tail end of a training session, and they loved it. And I got this request to do more of that, and we sat down and started talking. She said, what about doing some talks at schools, and what about doing some men's mental health type stuff? What about running some camps? And I said, well, I love all of this stuff but I can't do it. I'm too busy. I'm running, I'm doing 17 overseas trips a year between Kokoda's, Everest Base Camps, Kilimanjaro's. This was pre-COVID. Now, as I said, they're very alpha and they're very successful people. They don't get successful by accident. And COVID hit and I got this phone call saying that, um, what's happening with the venture business? And I said, well, it's, she's dead and buried at the moment because we can't travel overseas, of course. She said, yeah. When I asked you about doing that youth development stuff, you said that you're too busy. And I said, yeah, I was. <laughs> she said, I reckon you're not too busy now. I said, yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so began some camps. And I was luckily enough, it started working with 
a young footballer by the name of Jaden Nikarima. He had lost his footballing career at that stage due to some drug and alcohol abuse and behavioural issues as a teenager. The code had, had wiped him. He'd been out of the game for a few years. He came to me through the Redcliffe Dolphins Q Cup squad. He'd just been allowed to play rugby league again. So I started working with him. He reached out to me personally, actually, after I did something with the, with the Q Cup squad. And so I worked with him. And within six weeks, this young man turned his life around. He just made a decision. And he's, he's literally a role model these days. And through the work that we did, he ended up getting a, a contract back at the NRL with the Melbourne Storm. He didn't get many games. That was mostly due to some injuries happening at inopportune times. But you know, his last game at the end of last year, he carved up the Bronx. Personally, it was him pretty much controlling that game. And he played the entire game. And then he's now just picked up a Super League contract with the Catalan Dragons. But while he was working with me, I thought, well, why can't we use young men like this to get up and talk about their experiences? Because I'm a 50-year-old bloke talking to 14, 15-year-olds. You're just another bloke talking at them. But I've got this young footballer who's saying, hey, you know, I was on a $600,000 a year contract and I tore it up. And kids go, holy hell, that's a lot of money. Like, I'd be happy with 600 grand, but you realize there's more going on. And so that's how it kind of started. We did the boys' camps. And then one day, Taylor and I, a good friend of ours, Sharon Casablanca, she's very involved with Brisbane Netball. And her husband, Michael, is a very good mate of mine in, in the personal development space as well. And Sharon said, would you and Taylor come and talk, this is when COVID had started, to these netballers. And we had to do a presentation to two different groups of netballers because of the numbers and how people had to be situated back then. And we had to do it outdoors because you weren't allowed to do it at an indoor venue. So we're outside with a projector and the wind blowing. And we're just doing this very imperfect talk. And these kids loved Taylor because, you know, she's talking about boxing. That's like, wow, and all these questions. And, And one of the questions that came up is one of the kids said, are you running camps? Because we told them about the bro camps. Uh, what about camps for girls? And we said, well, one day we might run camps for girls, but not at this stage. By That was on a Thursday. By Monday or Tuesday, I had half a dozen emails and probably a dozen phone calls from mums trying to book their girls in on camps that didn't exist. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I guess we're doing girls camps now. And we did our first girls camp and like 27 girls turned up. And I happened to also mentor some school teachers. And I had two in particular who were at Marsden State High at the time, um, Digi, a, a Japanese girl who's just one of my favorite humans in the world, and Morgan, who's now actually in well-being in the NRLW. But these were very driven women who were very passionate about you know, helping people. So I used females to run the female programs. I just oversee it. And it just went off. We did an amazing sort of work. And we've had all these girls come through. And that's how they came about. It's a mixture of my military experience. It's a mixture of me mentoring people who got value out of it. But how it really started was most people that come back from, say, Kokoda will say to me, that was life-changing. But the people who truly need their lives changed can't afford it. So I was like, how can we get personal development in the hands of young people? And does it even work? It's that old saying, be the person that you needed. I don't know if the 14-year-old me, because I was a bit off the rails by the time I moved out of home, I don't know if he would have connected with me and my team and what we're doing or if he would have thought it was lame. But the 51-year-old version of me is trying to be who I know the 14-year-old needed. Mm. And I know the 25, 26-year-old version of Jaden at the time needed. You know, And Jaden had a lot of good people in his life. It wasn't that he didn't have good family and good people, but it was that personal development piece. I term it this way. I mostly, when I was just doing one-on-one coaching, coached 35 to 50-year-olds. 
who realise that life hasn't quite turned out the way they would have liked and they need some help to do something about it. And I call that a downriver thing. We're pulling them out of the river and, and trying to solve this problem for them, you know, saving them, for want of a better word. What if we went upriver and found out why are they falling in in the first place? What if we gave 14, 15, 16 through to 21-year-old skills that they might not even know they need yet? But when the 25 or 30 or 35-year-old version gets kicked in the guts, because life does do that to us, they will be able to say, hey, I'm actually, I'm going to call back to some skills I learned. Or, and, and I don't know if that was going to work, but I was certainly willing to try. I was recently watching a TikTok of a young girl, she's probably 19, 20, 21, who did a program with me in two, or say 2020, somewhere like that. And she was at school. She was in year 12. Her name's Anna, beautiful kid. And she was just doing a program with me back then. And I don't know if we got through, we got on really well, but she's doing the 75 hard challenge, which a lot of people would have heard of. Part of that 75 hard challenge is you've got to read 10 pages of a personal development book of some sort. And when we had these kids, we gave them a book called High Performance Habits by Brendan Bouchard. It's one of my favorite books, very basic as far as breaking down some high performance habits that people have. And while I just happened to be watching her TikTok, she said, the book I'm going to read is High Performance Habits. She said, this was given to me a few years ago at school when I was doing a program. And to be honest, I didn't really read it. I just kind of flicked through it. But I'm committed through 75 Hard to read the book. I would view the program we did with Anna three, four years ago was a success because now at a little bit older, she's gone, actually, I've got this thing and now I'm going to invest some time in it. So we might not get immediate results with what we do, but long term, I think I believe, I'd like to believe that we are getting the results and we are being the people that these young people needed, which means we're being the people that we needed. Yeah. I, I love that whole thought around those camps and teaching the youth to really grow before, because obviously as humans, what we do, right, is a lot of the time you grow up, you get to a point, something happens in your life, the shit hits the fan and you go, oh, I've got to change, right? Mm. But it's all those one percenters that we can kind of, just those one steps. What's that one step or what's that one thing that they can do? I, I find with my boys, you know, and, and we all know with kids, you'll not lecture them, but you'll, you'll subtly talk to them about something and five or 10 years later, they go, oh, I remember when my dad or I remember when mum, and you go, ah, oh, you were listening. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should say that. I do a lot of talks at schools in front of sporting groups and with young people on programs, and I'll regularly get teachers and mums and dads saying, oh, I tell them that stuff as well. But as the people closest to them, I think we become white noise. I'm sure I'm white noise to my own children, but when they hear it from an outside source, it hits a little bit differently. Now, mostly young people are seeking advice from the people least qualified to give it to them, which is their mates. Mm. And if you can come in like myself and my team and be energized enough and interesting enough to capture their attention, then you become another voice that they can add in. And mm. we're definitely getting those results. When I look at the young athletes we've got coming through, we've got kids in our gym who are, because it's not really a gym, if I'm honest, we hashtag more than a gym. It's a personal development space. Yep. They can't have that not rub off. And we've got kids that are competing at state, national, international level in sports from rowing, water polo, swimming, boxing, obviously, um, footballers, throwers, we've got discus and shot putters and you name it. Now, they can go to any gym. They could go to specialists who just specialize in their sport. That's not why they come to us. They come to us, I don't believe it. They come to us because the energy in here is good. We 
actually care about their result more than our own egos. It's not about us. It's about them. I'm long past the age of it being about me. And I think that that rubs off enough that they just want to be here. It becomes an addictive thing for them. It's a safe space. It's a space where they can be who they are. They're celebrated for their wins. They're lifted up when they have their, their failures. And they just like coming in. These kids will play games on the weekend and still turn up here on the Monday. So, you know, I, I'm really proud of what we've created. And I wish, I'll be honest, there's not much money in it. You know, most of the time we're, we're breaking even. Sometimes we're losing money. We have businesses and people that will sponsor and, and throw some money in just, but we're not, you know, all of my people that run the camps, including myself on those camps, are not getting paid. Mm. Jade and Cassa, Cassa's daughter, Britt, who's a school teacher, you know, DG Morgan. These are all people with full-time jobs who come and give up weekends to help young people have a, a bit more hope in life, and there's no money to pay them. If you want government grants, you've got to fight and beg and borrow and almost prove that you are going to do it the way they want to do it, which isn't working. And it's a real struggle, but it's not a struggle that I'm giving up on anytime soon. Yeah. I've got a friend that works in a youth detention centre and he was saying to me about these youth, you know, the youth crime laws and and what oh no, we're gonna we're gonna do this and we're gonna do stronger sentences and everything like that. And he's like, they just don't have a clue. The government just don't have a clue. You know, things like what you're doing, Glenn, and what others are doing, getting into schools and really one, mixing that physical element of it that, as mm. you say, adventure is one of the best self-development tools in the world, right? Yeah. So exercise. And then the, the mental benefits of human connection and having mentors and having someone, and you'd know this from your military background, is that when you're in a war zone, you know you've got someone next to you that you can rely on yeah. and then they can rely on you. And I think teenagers can sometimes feel a little bit alone and don't feel like they've got someone next to them. But when you're building these groups, you're building these families, you've got Project 180, right? It's a family. Mm, 100%. You're just adding more and more into that family. You're also, as you say, building better humans because better humans will then attract better humans and inspire better humans. And that just continues to grow and grow. And that's how we change the world. Yeah, we have a saying here at 180 that you don't join. You don't get a membership per se. Mm. I mean, obviously, we're a gym and we have memberships. We say you don't join Project 180, you belong. Yeah. And so people know that I belong when I come in here. And that was the thing that I really wanted to get across to people. In Since getting into the youth development space, I've run into so many good people in this space mm. and they're all fighting just to keep their heads above water. And I feel like, and I'm not here to bash any government, but I feel like the governments are just ignoring them. We're looking at bigger picture and throwing money at all the wrong things. And there are grassroots organizations that are big borrowing, stealing, that are, we build everything off what you said, fitness mindset and adventure, but then how do you finance these things? And then how do you quantify the results that you're getting short of interviewing the kids, And which I don't know that that's necessary either. And we did do some feedback when we worked at one of the schools and the feedback, and it was anonymous, so the kids could roast us if they want to, and the feedback was phenomenal. Now, we're not doing anything magic. We're just we, – we come in here with a no-ego attitude. I tell kids right from the beginning, I'm here. I'm not a school teacher. I'm not trying to stand over you. We're not the authorities. I will respect you and I'll demand respect from you, from my team, and you must respect each other. That's really important. Um, self-respect. A lot of these kids don't have self-respect because they don't think they're worthy. I know this. Locking people up for longer is not the answer because the people that are at that end of the scale, and I was there as a young man, 
we already feel like the society is the enemy. We already feel like if you've got something nice, I can take it from you because that's survival. So by making them more the enemy, I just think we're creating a bigger problem. What we do need to do is work out how to connect with them. And that's different for all humans. My program won't work for everyone necessarily. No one's would, but there are programs out there that are the right thing. And you can't treat these kids like idiots. They bought out these programs to try and stop. We've got a big islander community here, like 70% islanders, um, Samoans, Tongans, Cook Islands, Maldives. And there was a big program running through the Logan to try and stop islander kids carrying knives because that's an issue. They spent $5 million, the government, on this program. And they come up with these, initially, these cartoon type characters who just had this saying that I live my life without a knife. And these kids are tough kids. They're 14 year olds, but they've been through some stuff. They've got mums and dads that are drugs, alcohol, in and out of jail, domestic violence, whatever going on that's causing them to be on the street. You put up a cartoon that says, I choose to live my life without a knife. And these kids go, what, what is that? You know, it means nothing to them. So what a waste of $5 million. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't try and do something, but that just kills me. If I was a business and I just threw $5 million at something and hoped it worked, and after two days they pulled that, that initial program, you couldn't afford it. You'd go under. But our go- And I'm not, again, not here to bash the government, but I think that we talk about how it takes a village to raise a child. That is the thing that we're missing at the moment. We're not understanding that our next generation needs us. Mm. We, we don't get to turn a blind eye because I'm, my life is very good. I've got a nice property. I've got a good business. I, I can blinker away from the rest of the world and go, I'm not going to look over there because I don't want to see the uncomfortable stuff. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm. And ultimately, when we're talking about high crime levels, it affects all of us because that's a, we all pay for that somewhere along the line in the costs of insurances, the costs of everything goes up. But then again, I want to highlight that our programs aren't just for those kids. I've got kids coming in from schools like Churchy, and I've got kids coming in from the other end of the scales who are referred to me, and they all come together. Mm. I have athletic kids. I have kids with disabilities from autism and ADHD. They all come together because you don't get to just deselect the rest of society and just be in my own little bubble. So I want kids to be able to work together and learn from each other and One of the key things I think we've done successfully in our program is at the end of the program, I ask all kids to get up and speak for about two minutes about something they took out of the program. No one likes public speaking, let's be really honest. Most people listening to this, if I ask them to get up and just tell me a little bit about themselves, I'll get sweaty palms and their heart rates are beating and we hate it. But these kids hate it too, I can promise you that. They'll they'll tell me that they don't want to do it, but we help them with it. But here's the key, I I say to them, don't validate the program if you didn't like it. I'm okay with you getting up and saying, I hated it. Mum and dad forced me to come here. I don't want to be here because we take phones off them and everything. So they're just, there's nowhere for them to hide. But if you hated it, get up and say, I hated it, didn't want to be here, but I still want you to tell me something positive you took out of it, something you learned about the program, about yourself. Because if you can find a positive in a negative situation, you are going to be better than 90% of the world's population. And that was evidence during COVID where people just went on rants and attacked people and you know, it was everyone's fault from Trump to China to, to Anna to whoever, as opposed to just handling my own peace in the world. And that's all we try and teach young people. We have a thing where you say to them, just solve the problem in front of you. Whatever you're presented with, just solve that. Mm. Make that your first step. Don't look too far ahead. Don't catastrophize a situation. Just deal with that. The amount of kids who've actually got up and said they hated the program, 
we've put 3,000 kids through programs. I can think of about five kids that have said that, and mostly it was tongue-in-cheek because we gave them the permission to. (laughs) Mostly they get up and go, you know what, this is what I took out of the program. I learned to be more confident. I learned One of the common things that comes out is I learned what I'm capable of. Mm. If I push myself, I can achieve anything. Because we go out and climb mountains, and this is not a bushwalk. These are four or five-hour climbs. I've made 10, 11, 12-year-old girls and boys climb things like Mount Maroon at 10 o'clock at night, getting to the top at 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, setting up a shelter just made built out of a tarp, sleeping until 4.35, getting up again, going up to the summit, coming down. Like That's an epic experience Mm. that most kids would not ever, most parents wouldn't want to do that to their children. I can do it to other people's children because I'm not emotionally attached to them, and I see instead potential in them. Do I want to do that to my own children? Maybe not. Someone else needs to do that because my role as a parent is nurture, but when I can do it for other kids, I'm 100% sure they return as better humans as a result. They realize what they're capable of, and we need to give young people problems to solve and then get out of their way, let them make mistakes or solve the problem, let them adjust, ask for help if they need it, and all of a sudden we're building capable humans as opposed to us solving all the problems for them. Mm. I've got a friend, Greg Scheinman in America, and I had him on a podcast and talking about when your kids are growing up, it's very easy if you're athletic and you're into sports to coach your kids. Mm. And he said, I got to a point where I worked out that my role was not as a coach, but was as a dad. And he said, that was a far more fulfilling. He said, I loved that role far better than I did Mm. being a coach to my child. It's funny you should say that. I think that's a really good insight. I get a lot of feedback around Alyssa climbing Mount Everest and saying, like, you're amazing. If I'm really, really honest, I don't think I was an amazing dad Mm. for her. I think I was more of a coach. Yep. And I helped her with mindset and I took very seriously the fact that she was going to put her life on the line. And if I had all my time again, and I did get other people to help her, but if I had all my time again, I would have worked out a way to step back from being so involved in preparing for the climb physically, mentally, emotionally, and would have spent more time just being a dad. And I think we all can do life better if we look back in hindsight, of course. But I think if I had my time again, and if I could look back and change anything, it would be that I would have been more of that role. And I definitely took more of that coaching. And I was pretty tough on her at times. And I justified it by saying, hey, you're putting your life on the line in this thing that you want to do. And I wasn't there when she climbed Everest on any of her climbs because, you know, it's an expensive pursuit and we were fundraising and I was working. And so not only did she go and climb Mount Everest at the age of 17 was her initial attempt, 18 was her second attempt, both failed attempts due to weather, nine and natural disasters, 19 was her first successful attempt, 21 was her second successful. I wasn't there for any of those. So not only is she doing this, she's doing it on her own. So I just felt I had to build this strong, hard, resilient human. If I had my time again, I probably would have been a little bit softer. I was ex while still in the military for a large chunk of that. You know, my older two daughters don't hug a lot. They don't say they love you a lot. They'll text it but not say it. Whereas my younger two are really huggy and we say I love you 30, 40 times a day. And my older girls say, oh, my God, those kids, you've made them really soft or you've become really soft. Yeah, I became a dad. And I think too often when my older girls were younger, I was a soldier first. I was a, like you say, a coach first. I was a mentor first. And if I could give any younger dads any idea how to change that, just be a dad. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And Alyssa didn't inspire you to aim for the summit? No, it's an interesting question and it comes up. I think if you're going to put your life on the line for something, you have to want to do it. It's not Mm. just a cool-to-do thing. Most people, when we think about standing on the summit of Mount Everest or opening a business, we think about best-case scenario, which is that 
moment of me standing on the summit and oh, and the sun's coming down and there's a lot that happens between there and there. When I open the doors of my business, I'm so passionate about what I do and I'm so good at what I do. People are going to run the door down. I'm going to have trouble keeping up with the workload. And that's not real. And the reality is that a lot of things happen. So when she first was trying to climb Everest, I got her every book and every DVD on everything that went wrong. And I said, here's the summit and here's all the other things. If you can accept those, if you're willing to risk those, then go for the summit. There's nothing in me that wants to stand on the summit of Mount Everest. There's no drive or motivation for me to do that, for one. Two, the only motivation that could ever happen, and I'm getting older, so I hope this doesn't happen now, would be if she said, I want you to come with me and we're going to go to Mount Everest. I would most likely give it a crack. But the third thing is that throughout the process of her climbing Mount Everest, everyone used to think it was about me. Everyone used to say, oh, it's her dad driving her because people can't understand a young human Mm. being as motivated and inspired as she was. And she was very, very driven to the point of hard to live with almost because she was so driven that nothing else mattered except Everest. It was these real blinkers. But because she lived for many, many years of having to hear that it was probably dad's idea, which I think was disrespectful to her. The media did it. Everyone did it. I would never want to take that away from her by me now going out and doing it and people going to see. Because when they hear Alyssa summit Everest, people go, have you summited? No, I haven't. Oh, they just expect I would have. If I summit Everest, so I go and summit next year. And then I tell the story of Alyssa and someone goes, oh, have you summit? I go, yeah. They'll assume I did it before her. Mm. I wanted it to be her thing. I think she deserves for it to be in our family alone. She deserves for it to be her thing, and the only thing that would change that would be if she asked me to do it. And I'm, I'm getting older, so it'll take a bit of work. <laughs> <laughs> well, if she's if she does listen to this, she better hurry up. <laughs> yeah, but it's just never been a drive for me. And I think that's it. It's a good note for people listening. When it comes to your goals, don't be influenced by other people's. As cool as they might be, and let's be honest, like climbing Mount Everest is pretty cool. But if I look at her sometimes, like, you know, we've got four kids and I look at her and she's just one of the kids, right? And, you know, she's an adult now, of course. There are times I've just looked at her and think, man, she climbed Mount Everest twice, like twice, you know? That just blows my mind. But in our family, to, to Christian in particular, Christian loves Alyssa. It's just, she's just Alyssa. Or he always calls her Miss Alyssa. She's always just Miss Alyssa. That's, and I love that. She gets to be grounded in that sense. And, yeah, I, like, I'm overawed by what she's achieved regularly. But, but for anyone listening, you can be overawed with what someone does, but don't have to want to be them. Mm. So there's no, if I compared my achievements to Alyssa, I'd feel like a failure. Mm. Like she climbed Mount Everest at 19. She climbed Mount Everest again at 21. She did the Kokoda track for the first time at eight years of age. She did Everest Base Camp when she was 10. If I compared myself to her achievements, I'd think, man, what was I doing with my life? But, you know, I've done a lot and I've done different things. I've done cool things, but I just haven't done what she's done. So I could never win that mm. comparison. But that's our lives now. We compare to everyone. Having her in my life has taught me not to compare to anyone else mm. because my journey is very different. And I know it's very cliche, but my journey is different. I'm happy, healthy, fulfilled with what I get to do. I do the best I can with the knowledge that I have at all times. And when I know better, I do better. And that's all you can ask of yourself. And that's just a message that I would leave people with is don't be overawed by other people's goals to the point where you make them yours. Because if it's not real, particularly if it's an Everest, why would you put your life on the line? And that leads well into my next question, which is what does success mean to you and how has that changed through your life? Success, I heard a Tony Robbins quote years ago where he said success in his mind was being able to do what you want as often as you want with whoever you want. And that's not what most people have in their life. And I liked that. But success for me is to be happy, healthy, and feel fulfilled with whatever the day presents me 
I feel I'm capable of handling it, even the tough things. And I've had plenty of tough things going on. There's someone in, you know, in our life very close to us that's going through a cancer battle at the moment that's been going through chemo. And it's, that stuff is humbling and it's very tough and it's, you, you just got to sit and watch and be on the sideline. So, of course, if you could change things in your life, you would. But success to me is, is just having that capacity to deal with whatever life throws you and to be the best version you can and to generally wake up feeling like I'm happy to be alive. And not everyone has that. That's success to me. How has it changed? I think what I could offer people who are listening, if you're a 20 or 30-year-old, you know, in those sort of age ranges, and this is natural, I was very driven. Success was about being the best. It was about winning. It was about having the trappings. It was it was the Range Rover. It was the nice house. It was the it was the keeping up with the Joneses effectively. And I do think through our 20s and 30s, I think it's good and natural to be driven by things that inspire us. But then COVID comes along and, and in my 40s, which to me was the best decade of my life, the hardest in some ways, but also the best. And then my 50s, I hope I'm saying the same thing by the end of my 50s, I'm nearly 52. And I feel like my life is pretty damn good. I'm not driven by materialistic things anymore, but I don't beat myself up in the fact that I was in the past either. What I've learned is that not to value anything or anyone that can be easily taken from you. If I'm validated by money, and I'm not against money, don't get me wrong, we need it. But if I'm validated by how much I have, by the car that I drive, by the house that I have, by the people that I'm surrounded by, if I'm validated by any of those things that can be taken from me, what happens when they do get taken from me? And I've learned in life, things get taken from you, be it your finances, bad business decisions, going into business with the wrong people, a business getting shut down due to COVID. Like Who would have thought we wouldn't be able to leave our state, let alone international? I never thought that would happen. When they closed the international borders three or four weeks before the Anzac period started, we had our busiest year in the Adventure Professionals brand for since it had opened. And so we dropped $600,000 immediately. And if you think that didn't hurt, wow, that hurt, you know, and that's what made me realize that if I'm validated by the things that can be taken from me, now what can't be taken from you? Education, the things that you know, experiences that you have. So what I put in here, who I'm talking to, who I'm listening to, what I'm watching, what I'm reading, experiences I've had, instead of stockpiling money and, and, and having the nice car, what if I go and have a really cool experience? That can't be taken from me. And so I've just learned to value different things. But I think that's a natural journey. I think most 20-something-year-olds, if you were thinking the way I think right now, you might not be happy either. I think it's natural to be driven when we're young and we've got energy and where I think about, I work a lot with athletes and I actually do a lot of work in construction, but also in the real estate space. And I always say I love working with real estates because they're like athletes. They're uber competitive, mm. like it's a competitive field. So they'll take stuff on like athletes. And that's, that's good and it's natural. But I also think if you haven't sorted out your life financially and emotionally by the time you hit my age, you'll get some reality checks by that point and you'll realize that that stuff's not that vital. Someone my age getting cancer, which is what's happening in our world at the moment, made me realize, well, wow, that could happen to me. I'm a fit, healthy, I I think I'm invincible. I still feel like I'm going to live forever. But when something like that happens to someone, you go, oh, okay, very, very good friend of mine, his wife passed away three days ago due to cancer. And they were probably only three or four years older than me and very successful people in every sense that you can imagine the word. Big media profile for him. Uh, she used to be a model. They've got um, houses and cars and beautiful family. 
But her son, the youngest son's 14 and just lost his mum. That really hit me to say, okay, what's actually important in my life? Is it all that stuff? And I know if you're young, you're probably going, yeah, yeah, every bloke your age says stuff like this or every person your age, but that's just where I'm at at life. That success is no longer about things. It's about the impact I can have on people. Well, you can't take it with you, right? It's what you leave behind. 100%. And, and we all leave that little piece of us to, none of us necessarily going to change the world, but I bet you we change the world of, of the people close to us. And and I was a workaholic for a lot of years, as was my dad, um, you know, and, and we, he and I don't have a relationship, probably as a result of that partially, but I was going down the same road and I was adamant I'm not going to be the same man as him. Mm. And whilst I never drank because of what he went through, I definitely gave far too much time and attention to the military I loved and that was a, I felt like you had to. But even the rest of my life when I got out of it, I'd take trips overseas, I'd do things for other people. And then COVID came and I spent a lot of time with my family, particularly with Christian and, and Sammy, my youngest, and you went, this is where it's at. Mm, yeah. Who would you say through your life has been your greatest teacher? Oh, that's a, that's a tough question. I can go back early days. I was a real road kid. And when I was in year seven, so I'm going back a long, long time, I had two people in my life. I had a teacher called Gail Pike, and I had a martial arts instructor called Peter Binloss. Neither of, actually, Gail is on social now. Peter's never been on social media. I lost track of these people many, many years ago. Through Facebook, I was able to track down Gail and I met with her just pre-COVID and she's in her 70s and she's retired. And we just had this amazing conversation about how she grew up in a time when, when women were married or pregnant, they could no longer work. They were told to leave the workforce. And she was doing a teaching degree and she was the first teacher that she knows of who was able to convince what was then the Victorian State Education Department to allow her to continue to finish her degree. She went on to have a 43-year teaching career changing people's lives like mine. She was that teacher. And imagine if we hadn't given her that opportunity. And my martial arts instructor was a great bloke who never had kids himself. His wife was a preschool teacher. And we were very poor growing up. I couldn't afford martial arts training. I think it was about three bucks a week, but we're talking the 80s. And so he was a TV technician back when they used to repair TVs in people's homes. And every school holidays and every weekend, I worked for him. I, I didn't do much. I just carried his toolboxes around. I did whatever he needed. And that's how I paid for my tuition to do martial arts, which is one of the very few things that were positives in that stage of my life. So they were massive. Joining the military, I had a sergeant when I was doing my subject one for corporal course, which is an infantry minor commander's course or minor tactics. His name was Eddie Penman. And he was this big, huge, we used to call him Yogo because he had a chest on him like the Yogo gorilla. He was just a beast of a human. But you know, and we didn't call him Yoga to his face. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> but he was a guy that just, he just taught you how to be a good human. I was going to say a good man because it was mostly men in the military back then, but just a good human. And it was about make eye contact with people, say hello to people. You know, when you're walking past each other, don't just look down. And, and he just taught you a lot about the personal standards that you need to hold. And they're really important. Interestingly now, the mentors I have now are the young people that I mentor. Mm. So I look at Taylor, I look at Digi Morgan, I look at Jaden, Millie, Bryce, these Matthias. I've got this coach at my gym, Matthias, who's just an absolute beast of a human, one of the best humans I've ever met in my life. Amazing. Very, very good CrossFit athlete himself, but yet the best coach. He can coach a 16-year-old or a 65-year-old as if they're the same people. He's just got this beautiful energy. I'm inspired by them. They think 
that I uphold a standard. We have a saying on the back of our Building Better Humans Project shirts, which is how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm. There's a standard that we operate with even when people aren't watching. And they will hold me to that standard as much as I'll hold them to that standard. And I love that because to me, I got told years ago that in life you should have mentors older than you, but also mentors younger than you because everyone's got different perspectives. Mm. And my ego is, is such in this day and age and at this stage of my life, I've got no problems being inspired by younger people, no problems at all. Being inspired, being held to a standard, we say who we are and, and we live to that. And if you don't live to that, they'll call you out and say, mate, that's not really how we do things, is it? That's, and I like that. That's, for me, probably the best mentors I have right now are the, are the young people around me. Yeah, that's awesome. Glenn, best travel experience in your life? <laughs> well, yeah, that's hard because I travel a lot, obviously. The first Kokoda track that I did with Alyssa as an eight-year-old, it's very, very hard. And I've had other people that have gone with their kids at 15 or 16 or, and they say the same thing. But traveling with one of your children and watching them achieve something pretty epic. Now, I was in the army, so carrying a pack and walking through the jungle was no nothing new to me. But watch this eight-year-old who's a little eight-year-old. She looked like she was six. I've seen the pictures. <laughs> yeah, I'm not having great camping experience or anything, but she was out there doing that thing, man. And, I was, and she did it in the same amount of days as everyone else. And she was this really driven young girl. And I remember we got to the hotel in Port Moresby. We, it was, used to be called the Crown Plaza. It's changed now, but it was the Crown Plaza Hotel. And there was a group going to Kokoda there. And I was with her and it, news got out that, hey, that kid's doing Kokoda. It was just her and myself and two friends of mine, just a little small group. And we're getting to, onto the elevator that takes us up to our rooms. And there was this older bloke there, probably in his sort of early 60s, maybe 62 to 65. And she's standing right beside me. He doesn't even look at her. He looks me right in the eye and he says to me, you're effing, he didn't say effing for the record, but he said, you're effing kidding yourself if you think that she's going to be able to walk the Kokoda track. And I just looked back at him and said, no, nah, she'll be fine. No, I didn't know she'd be fine, but I was willing to let her find out. And we had contingency plans, if not, and we got upstairs and we went into the room and she said to me, Dad, why do people think that I can't do it? And I said to her, and the only way I could think on my feet really in that moment was I said to her, you know, Liz, People judge you based on their limitations, not yours. Mm -hmm. So he's a 60-odd-year-old bloke who's not sure. He's feeling nervous. It was only my fifth or sixth Kokoda at this stage. I said, he's feeling nervous about whether he's prepared enough, whether he's physically capable. So the idea that an eight-year-old girl could do this, that's really challenging for him. Anyway, she never brought it up again. And they were on the track the same time as us, heading in the same direction. So we thought, we'll just let them go ahead. We just wanted to steer clear of them a bit, not interfere other people's experience. And because they were a bigger group, 15, 20 people, and we were only four, we kept running into them. She never missed a beat, this kid. She was just, she was too fast. I wish I'd put more weight on her to slow her down, but she was energized. Kids are very resilient. So after a couple of days, we skipped in front of them just because they were slowing us down. And we never saw them again. We'd get into camps. We might see them in the occasional village, but boom, we're in. And she never said anything. And she's a very, very quiet girl. But as we finished at Owa's Corner, she said to me, you know, his name was John, this guy we found out through our trek. And she said, Dad, you know that John who said I wouldn't make it? And I said, yeah. She said, I've beaten him into camp every single day. <laughs> and I went, good on you, mate. Like, she's an eight-year-old. And I went, good on you. Like, don't. Don't be talked down by people. Don't be talked out of things by people. And at eight years of age, she might not have known it yet, but she knew it. I was really proud of that. 11 years later, that same girl stood on the top of Mount Everest. It's very, very hard to beat that first Kokoda experience. Now, I've had so many. I've taken single and double leg amputees across the track. I worked with Damien Tomlinson, lost both of his legs in Afghanistan. 
and he walked the Kokoda track on a one prosthetic limb and some crutches because his full leg wouldn't work. That's pretty amazing, you know, to sit and watch that. I had a kid that was ejected from a car in a car accident. He got submerged in water and got some brain damage. At 21 years of age, he was paralyzed down one side of his body. Most of his arm was sort of all bent. And he walked the track with his mum. And his mum said to me, this is him trying to prove to me that he can live out of home on his own, that he can be independent. And so he got a stick, the boys cut for him, that he just kind of put down the way his arm would sort of walk. And he walked and dragged that leg across the whole Kokoda track. And he could play the bugle. And when we got to Isharava, he played the last post. Like I, I have goosebumps thinking about that moment. Wow. And he got to the end of that trip. And I just thought, man, like, what I get to do is such an amazing experience because you're facilitating that that young man, Damien, who was who was trying to honor a mate of his who died, a mate who saved his life in Afghanistan, who then died two weeks later when he was shot down in a chopper. And you know, these are people that have got their own reasons to put themselves through really difficult situations. And here's me. I can walk and move and do all the things that I want to do. I've got nothing to complain about. And and I could go on and on. I took a good friend of mine, Lisa Curry, who's a most people know is a former Olympian and Commonwealth Games medalist. Her daughter sadly passed away a couple of years ago, and she took she's got twelve vials of Jamie's ashes that she's putting in different parts of the world. And Jamie has been to France a lot, and so some of her friends took stuff there. But I took uh, Lisa to Mount Kosciuszko in the snow, and she took one up there, and it was really tough conditions. It was very emotional. And then she came dog sitting in the Yukon with me and we dropped some ashes out there. And again, Lisa's one of the most beautiful humans and to watch every time she does this, the raw emotion of not having Jamie around in her life anymore is reignited. And I don't know, you can't take away from those experiences ever. It's so much better than any other travel that I've done when you get to facilitate people doing amazing things. Yeah. I saw the the videos that she posted, her and Mark, and what a what an awesome experience! Something that I want to do, and my son. Well, we got two sons, uh, younger sons. We've got an elder son as well. But our sixteen year old son was out to dinner with us the other night, and my wife wants to do base camp. And as you know, I've wanted to do base camp for a, a fair while. And we turned to him and said, "Do you want to do base camp?" And he's like, "Yeah, okay." So that's something that we want to experience. And two tables from us with my, was my brother, who runs a travel business, and. They were out to dinner with friends. He'd actually done Everest Base Camp. And uh, I said, oh, you know, Lockie's saying for his 18th, he'd, he'd like to do Everest Base Camp. And they just said, if an 18-year-old or a kid can go and do Everest Base Camp and have that experience at their age, it will change their life. Mm, 100%. And it gives them a different perspective. When I take young people over and they see happiness of – of young kids in villages on Kokoda or in villages in Nepal who surface level have nothing, mm. but they're just living in grass huts or stone huts or in, in really harsh environments. And we think as Westerners they've got nothing. I look at that and I say they've got everything. They've got family. They've got food and water. They've got everything. They don't have to be at work. They're not trying to build a bigger house than the neighbours. I think they've got life ironed out. I think we haven't as Westerners. But when we can take our young people to experience that, I think it shows them what's important, but also makes them go, okay, I've got life pretty good. Like as an Australian, I love this country, love this country. It's why I served for it. It's why I still try and serve for it in a different way. But we are a softer society, of course, and we've earned the right to be that. But I think sometimes we can lose perspective on just how good we've got it as well. And I love travel, but I love coming home too. Mm. And also it, it teaches them that 
wow, if I can achieve that, what else can I achieve in my life? hundred percent. I just took my accountant to Kokoda. Yeah, she wasn't physically prepared and it was on very short notice. I bullied slashed, encouraged her to go. When she said, I want to do Kokoda next year, I said, do it now. And she came out and did the last one and she's never camped a day in her life. She said, you know, I'm like a four-star minimum type of girl. I said, yeah, I get that. Anyway, she, the first couple of days, I'm sure she hated me. It was tough, you know, and we did it in six and a half days. We normally do it in eight. And she was like, never again, getting rid of all my gear that I bought for this trip. I hate, you know, blah, blah. By the end of it, loved it. Like not the, maybe the experience was tough, but that's what I said to her. You think about this, what you've just achieved, and I know it's a physical thing, but in every other area of your life, I wonder what else you could achieve mm. because you previously thought this was – on day two or three, she said to me, I can't do this. I said, but you are doing it. What are you talking about? No, I just can't. And it was at day two, Lola. Anyway, she finished it. So at one point she believed – so we have this circle of the things that we believe we're capable of, mm. and outside of that is things we're aware of but we just think are – if I can advance my circle onto one of those things, I think it advances our circle wholly. Mm. And then what's the next thing I could take on? We become aware of more things. The only thing that we can't do is a thing that we're not willing to try, of course. But if you're willing to try and have those experiences, yeah, absolutely. You can do almost anything. As I say to people, you can do anything you want, but not everything. We need to be focused, but you can do anything. As it's the first episode into 2024, obviously a lot of people have probably made some New Year's resolutions and this year's going to be my best. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to make money. I'm going to open a business. But what are some of your tips on how does someone be a better human in 2024 and really make 2024 one of the best of their lives? It's a great question. In our society currently, and I've watched this trend for about the last decade, in the fitness industry in particular, it's become really cool to bag out the new year, new you type thing. People go, oh God, the new year, new you. But I say, you know what? If you feel inspired on the 1st of January, great, feel inspired, of course. And now it's probably not going to last if it hasn't lasted before. But I still like, I love the first of every month. I love Mondays. I love any, because they, to me, they're about a fresh start. So, all right, you've had the 1st of, of January, you've got the fresh start and you've made some news resolutions. And that's, I think, fantastic. That's the first step. But if you've not achieved those things before, there's a good chance you're not going to achieve them this year. So what do we do differently? And for me, there's a couple of real keys. One is about having what I call an accountability buddy. Who's someone that you can rely on? It doesn't have to be an actual coach. It could be your best mate. As long as you don't give each other slack when they don't do things and you help be there for each other and, mm-hmm. and you set little mini goals. You think about at least once in everyone's life, I think we should say to ourselves, what would I need to do to make this year the best year I've ever lived? Now, most people will go through life and never ask that question. Mm. And I think you should, you owe it to yourself to ask at least once. And it's physical, mental, emotional. It's everything in your life. It's financial. It's relationships. It's, but the way to do that, if I was getting in a car and I didn't know this country and I just got in a car in Brisbane and said, I want to drive to Sydney, no map, no, no, you know, modern car that gives us, you know, the Apple maps or Google maps. I just start driving. Where am I driving? And if I hit the Sunshine Coast, and I don't have a map, I, what do I do? Just keep driving. But if I had a map, i go, oh, crap, I'm going in the wrong direction. I just think goals are about having, and a lot of people roll their eyes at goal setting and only because they've got a negative with goal setting because they haven't, it hasn't worked for them in the past. Hmm. The goal setting to me is I set up a plan. What three things would I like to achieve in the next 12 months to make it the best 12 months ever? And they are not all work-related or personal-related. This is how I do it. What's one thing in my business or work life that if I achieved it would be, would be great? 
What's one thing in my personal life involving others? So I just call that personal others. And what's one thing in my personal life for me that I would be able to do that would make it my best year ever? And they don't all have to be the most, they don't all have to be climbing Mount Everest. You could learn to play a guitar. You could book out every once a month to, to have a date night with the kids or with your wife or a husband or whatever. Make it whatever you want it to be. But then I do three monthly, all right, to get towards any of those goals, what would I need to do in the next quarter? I treat it like a business in the next three months. Mm-hmm. And because most of us plan our businesses and our holidays better than we plan our lives. Yep. And then I'll say, all right, what's the three things I need to do in the next month? And I do this with accountability and I do it in any program I run. And then I dumb that down, for want of a better word, into weekly. What's, I don't do a to-do list. I mean, obviously, I have a to-do list. To-do list is pay your bills. <laughs> Electricity's due. The phone's due. Need to do this. I do a must-do list. What are three things every single week that I want to achieve? And and it's real simple. I'm going to go to the gym three times this week. I'm going to whatever the thing is. And then at the end of the week, I'll say, how did I go with those things? If something stays on that list for more than two weeks, so if it goes into a third week, I've got to ask myself a question. Why am I avoiding doing that thing? Hmm. It might not be that it's not beneficial. It might just be that it's bloody hard. And when you're trying to do something different in your life, it's bloody hard at times. And that's where your accountability buddy comes in. It's a person that calls you out. It doesn't let you go, oh, mate, I was flat out. Yeah, I understand you're busy. Well, I don't care if you're busy. You said you were going to do this thing. Why aren't you doing the thing? If truthfully, when you dig down on it, maybe that goal is not that important to you. And that's okay to change the goal. So for me, it's just about having an actual roadmap. So I just start with what do I want from the year? And then I reverse engineer. How am I going to achieve that? What would help move me towards that? But I'm also very, very happy with small wins as opposed to, you know, it's, I'll give a, it's an easy one would be to give a, I want to lose 10 kilos and I'll lose eight. And go, oh man, I just didn't get there. Well, eight's pretty good. Give yourself some, some capacity or you might lose 14. Oh crap, I didn't expect to do that, but that's pretty cool. Giving yourself some capacity to be okay with winning here and there as opposed to waiting till the end of the year. That's a very brief overview of how I like to look at goals and, and New Year's resolutions and all that sort of stuff. If you fall off track, and I'll let you in on a secret, you will, because we all do, then use the first of the month or whatever to be a restart. Or if, if it's middle of the month and you've fallen off track, don't go, oh, well, I'll start again next month. I'll start again Monday. I'll start again on the next fresh start that I've got. Like, don't wait for, or don't go, oh, crap, oh, I guess I'll get to the, I'll, I'll wait till next year. Of course not. Just start anyway. And I'll regularly, if I start a program with new people, and they might come in in March, I'll say, how do you make the next 12 months the best 12 months of your life? And it starts from now, so it goes till next March. All those dates are arbitrary. I just like dates like the first and the Mondays and the so on because they represent an actual fresh start for me that I can quantify. Yeah, that's awesome. So many people put a kilo, I want to lose 10 kilos, but 10 kilos, you can lose 10 kilos, but you can actually put on five kilos and look better than losing 10 kilos. Yeah, actually, it's probably a bad example for that reason because when people first come in here and they start doing a bit of strength training for the first time and they put on a bit of muscle, and it's true, muscle weighs more than fat about two and a half times to be exact. Well, but my clothes are fitting better. I've gone down two belt sizes or a dress size or a pants size. So you feel better, but the scales haven't moved much. What's more important to you? For me, surely it's feeling better is more important than looking better. Yeah, you might. Like in my fifties, I've given up on having a six pack. I'll give you the tip. But I've got mates in my age. I've got a mate in his sixties who's got a six pack. It's never going to be me. I can promise you. But because it doesn't really interest me. But I feel great. I can go and climb a mountain. I can go and do Kokoda. I can do stuff. And 
I don't have the biggest biceps or the six pack or the, but I feel fantastic. And I'm at that age right now, so I'm fit for my age. <laughs> I just feel good. I get out of bed energized most days. I have the issues of most 50 plus year olds where you wake up with a sore back. Training a girl recently, just doing a focus pad session, just a client. And I said, oh, geez, my back's stiff. And she said, what from? Like, what happened? And I said, nothing happened. I just got out of bed. I said, 51 happened. That's what happened. It's just life sometimes. And I learned to not whinge about that, but just go, that's just life. And other days, like today, I feel, I'm, I feel like I could go out and do a cartwheel. I probably couldn't, but I feel like I could. You know, feeling better is way more important than looking better, I think. Hashtag not dead yet. Not dead yet. That's why we do what we do because we're not dead yet. Glenn, what's the best way for people to reach out and connect with you? Mate, I'm really easy to find. Everything's just under my name, mostly Glenn Azo, um, Glenn with two N's, A-Z-A-R, Building Better Humans Project, Project 180, Adventure Professionals. If you go through any of those channels, you'll find me doing something or the people around me doing something. I'm surrounded by inspirational people, and that's not accidental. That's like you said earlier in this, that you you draw towards you that which you are most of the time. And and I had to make a really conscious change around that a few years ago. But so by following anything I do, you'll also get to see a lot of other inspirational people. I, I shout out to my team and my people a lot. I appreciate your time today. It's been awesome to watch your journey. I'm looking forward to watching the journey forward with building better humans, the boxing, the the gym, the camps, everything you're doing is is absolutely amazing. And I look forward to keep continuing our connection. Awesome, mate. Thanks. Really appreciate you having me on and appreciate your time as well. Time's one thing we don't get back, so I don't waste it easily. Been an absolute honor and a privilege. So thanks, Glenn. Legend. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode. That was awesome. That's good.